Hey, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have John Epperson. Hello, everybody. Valentino Stoll. Hey there. Dave Kimura. Hey, everyone. Luke Stutters. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and this week we are back with, I always struggle saying your name, I'm sorry, Maciek Mensfeld. Yes, that's correct. Hi, everyone. Do you want to just introduce yourself? It's been a little while since we've had you on the show. A couple of years, right? Yep. I'm Maciek Mensfeld. I do Ruby and security and Kafka. So that's pretty much all that I spend my time on. Hey, folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are gonna help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you wanna be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I wanna give you the resources that are gonna help you do that. We're gonna have career and leadership resources in there, and we're gonna be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Cool. So where do we start? Security or Kafka? Well, I think we can start with what made you invite me again, which is the article I wrote uh, a couple (laughs) months ago, right? Right. Sure. Do you want to kind of give us the 10,000 foot view on that? And then we'll kind of take it from there. Yeah, sure. So recently, that is for at least two years now, I've been rewriting the Kafka framework, the Kafka framework for Ruby that I do. Uh I figured out it was not of the highest quality, didn't met all of my expectations, and I decided to make it a bit better by rewriting everything. (laughs) And one of the things that you need to consider is whether you want to have something that is multi-threaded, even in Ruby or single-threaded, obviously single-threaded software is much easier to build. It is much easier to maintain, but it's not as performant, especially if you take into consideration that in Ruby and in Rails, we do a lot of IO stuff. If we do IO stuff, we can parallelize certain pieces of work. And Kafka is remarkably good at providing you data that you can work with in, in parallel. So I've been looking into ways to make sure that I within the Kafka framework that I can provide all of the warranties that are expected when you start working, working with Kafka, but at the same time that I can do work in parallel. It was inspired by a lot of work that Samuel Williams does from Ruby, Ruby core team. He's been a, a mm-hmm. huge help to me. Cool. So do you want to just remind us, because I think it's been like three years since we had you on the show. Do you want to just remind everybody what Kafka is and what it does? And then we can kind of yeah. grow from there. It's a distributed event log and people consider it a queue. <laughs> and Got people it. that know Kafka tend to be offended by that. I see it as a as a message bus, as a way of you standardizing a standardized ways way to exchange events that occurred in a system, right? So it isn't a, a message bus or a or a job queue. It, it isn't a job queue because that 
you shouldn't use it that way. Although people use that, you shouldn't use it that way. When you work with Kafka, you should broadcast events on what happened in your system, right? You don't expect it to handle things like do something, but you expect it to store information about things that happened. And if you do it that way, you can you can get pretty far and you can build really scalable applications. It, it is really fast. It works in scale and it isn't as big of a burden in terms of maintenance as it used to be years ago. Right. So, and it doesn't use Redis, which is a huge plus. Yeah, and so it's not going <laughs> to use Zookeeper. So, uh, I guess my other question is, is what, what kinds of things are people doing with Kafka? Like, do you have an example of mm-hmm. where you're using it or a company you know is using Kafka and Karafka? Yeah, so Cookpad. Do you know Cookpad? The company from Japan yes. kind of uh-huh. evolved yeah. in Ruby. So they're heavy, heavy Karafka and Kafka users. To extent of my knowledge, I know that they're streaming exactly what I told you about events, about things that happened in their system. And other parts of the system are consuming it to provide certain values, to provide some like different updates, to take certain actions on events that happened. Right? You you can you can build up independent components, even if it's a monolithic application, you can build up independent components that do only a single thing. And they have a decent scale. And in their scale, it's, it works well. Once they invited me to just help them out with, with some stuff, it was it's pretty, pretty much fun, pretty fun. So another company that uses Kafka heavily in Karafka is company I used to work in, Castle. It's a security company. They handle, I don't know how many requests per second they handle now, but they used to handle up to 50,000 requests per second with a, with a Rails app. And we used to consume... All of that with a single Ruby process, eating up messages from Kafka. So fifty thousand requests a second with a single process. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we had, technically speaking, we had two of them, and one was for redundancy in case the first one would hang. You can do a lot of things, and you can do it really fast, but you just need to know what what you're doing, right? And what it often depends on the way your system is built, the way you think. One of the biggest challenges that I that I have when when talking with people about Kafka or Karafka is the Rails mindset. People tend to think with entities. You know, they have a user, they persist it. They have a second user, they persist the changes on it one after another. They don't think in batches. They don't think, okay, I, get, I have 100 users. I'm going to do something in memory. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to buffer that. I'm going to get a second batch. I'm going to buffer that. And once I have enough data, I'm just going to flush it using some sort of a absurd, you know, on duplicate key ignore and, and things like that, like elevating certain databases features to, to make things 100 times faster, 1000 times faster. Often you don't even need to go to a database. A great example of, of something like that is when you have a lot of updates, of, let's say you need to keep track of last CNET on a website. That's a you know pretty common feature. And the typical approach with Rails is that you have a before action. Yeah, it's called before action. You have a before action. And whenever you have a user, you just, uh, you, you just touch the user. Let's talk with the Rails Active Record API. You touch the user to bump the data. The problem is if you have a lot of users and if you have 
API-based users that make 1,000 queries a second or, you know, even 100 queries a second, you kind of keep it, you, you kind of bump that all the time. But you could easily flush all of the user activities into Kafka. You could eat that up in Kafka. You could have a rolling window of, a, I don't know, a minute. And then you would reduce all of all of this noise into a single query. And then you kind of batch all of the user updates and you have a single query instead of having like hundreds of thousands of them. And this is how we use this approach to reduce the, the number of queries in one of the systems by 92%. We switched from per entity operations to doing this in batches. Obviously you lose a bit on the granularity of the updates, but let's be honest, most of the time, you don't, you don't really care if something happened 10 seconds ago or 20 seconds ago or a minute ago. It's a good enough accuracy. So yeah, pre- pretty much if you do if you do a lot of stuff with a lot of data, Kafka can be a huge benefit, but it's not as easy as people think. Yeah, I know that I have definitely been at a place where people reached for it like really early in the process when the place was really slow and ended up being a, a hurdle. It made sense later on. But it was definitely a lot of maintenance. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we, you can do that with any tool. So I guess so. So I also wanted to ask in following up to that, I wanted to ask in following up to that. So what? OK, so we used Kafka before and we used Karafka at the time. What exactly is making this one like so much faster? And like, what am I getting faster on? Like, it, am I just straight up? 10 times faster everywhere on anything that I do? Or do I need to have like tons of data going into the system? Like, why is it faster, I guess? So if you have a single process doing all of the work, it doesn't really matter, right? You don't have to make it faster because one process is enough. And it it gets more interesting if you have a bigger system that you need to scale. If you have multiple topics with multiple partitions, topics and partitions are like kind of like message queues and sub-message queues within the queues with certain delivery warranties. If you have a lot of partitions, a lot of messages, a lot of topics, basically a lot of data, you tend to have more processes than one. And this means two things. You need to pay more. And in case of a data spike, or in case you need to reprocess certain pieces of data, it may take a lot of time. Also, it may if you do a deployment, if something goes wrong, you put part of the system down, you put it back online in two hours, you need to catch up, right? You need to catch up and at the same time, you're getting new messages, which means that you're kind of lagging on everything. New Karafka is multi-threaded, pretty much like, like Sidekick. So as long as it can, it will do its best to run things in parallel in multiple threads. So if you're consuming more than a single partition of a single topic, it will parallelize the work. Obviously, for a CPU-intense work, not much is going to happen. You're going to get 0.1% of a difference. It may be even a bit slower. But as long as you do any type of I.O. operations, whether you dispatch webhooks, read from a database, write to a database, even write to a file, it's gonna it's gonna make things significant significantly faster. I'm also working on a on a feature where you will be able to parallelize work from a single topic partition. I call it virtual partitions, but it's it's still under development. I have a couple of features under development still for for 2.0. Okay, that's cool. The example that I was thinking of was a, a distributed kind of like microservices app, and so it was totally doing 
yeah, a lot of message passing around, you know, in various topics. So that makes some sense that it would benefit at least somewhat from this. It does batches too, big batches. Yeah, well, as big as you would want, So as I, long as you have enough memory to fit it. One really cool feature, two features of Karafka that I really like is obviously batches. Karafka 2.0 handles only batches. It doesn't handle like single messages. Though you can, you can force it to have batches of size one if you really, really want to. But the second thing is something I call lazy deserialization. So usually you get some sort of a data as a binary stream, right? It's a J un- unserialized a string, JSON string, for example, right? Or uh, any Apache Avro, which is partially JSON, XML, whatever. Until you really need the data to be deserialized, it isn't. And it saves a lot of CPU because you can often skip messages based on their headers or based on their raw payload. And that allows you to make things much faster. Hang on. I did try. I, I did try using uh, Raptors in, in 2.1 to make data deserialization happen in, on multiple cores or, or multiple CPUs. It worked great until it didn't. And when it didn't, it would just crush the whole Ruby VM. So once every 1 million messages, it would just crush the VM. Uh, not, not production ready. No, definitely not. That would be fine for Netflix. Hard to say, you know, I think, <laughs> I, I think we're not there yet with, with Raptors. Will we ever be? I don't know. Oh, no. Will That's we need them? I... That's the next question. That's where I want Raptors to be used in third-party libraries or gems that are maintained by very smart people like you that are going to be able to handle that kind of stuff so I don't have to do it. Because I know in my application, if I were to bring in Raptors or a lot of quote, thread safety stuff, I'm just going to have race condition after race condition. So I want to leave that stuff to the experts. I agree. Any type of concurrency should be abstracted away from the end users. They should benefit from it, but they shouldn't be aware, aware of it or they shouldn't have to do anything special. And this is what Rails actually introduced, right? This this engine for running parallel independent queries, I think it got merged with 7. something or 6. Something, something. It seems okay. It, it kind of viol- violates what you said because it you need to take an action. You need to declare that hey, I wanted to run it in a background thread. I want to run it explicitly as something. I still think we th- there's a space for improvements where things happen completely without any user interactions in that regard. But it's a good step forward. Before we get too far away from the Kafka topic, because <laughs> I, I have quite a few questions here. <laughs> uh, we use Kafka pretty extensively at Doximity, mostly for like data syncing between apps, kind of as the message bus and then process it later. But I, I'm curious if kind of uh, if you could just explain real quick what the maybe differences of of you know that your library, how it's different from maybe RD Kafka or uh, Ruby Kafka or, or some of the other mm-hmm. Kafka libraries that are mm-hmm. out there and maybe what, what advantages that it provides over those. So it uses librd Kafka, the C library under the hood. It's uh, written by a guy with GitHub handler, Eden Hill. And at the moment, all, all the high level libraries are switching to it because it's thread safe, it's reliable, it's well tested. And because everyone uses it, we can consider bugs to be detected and fixed. So I used to use something called Ruby Kafka written by Zendesk. I was maintaining some of it, patching it, but uh, it's not of the quality I would expect it to be. 
And even the author of it decided at some point that, okay, it's not, just not worth maintaining in the long run. Let's just switch to Liberty Kafka. What you've mentioned is our low-level libraries. It's like taking Rack with Puma and building all of the things yourself, just parsing HTTP and doing all of those things by yourself. Or you can take a tool that is a plug and play one that allows you to focus on your business logic. And this is where Karafka comes in. You don't have to worry about what is rebalancing, about corner cases of handling data, about handling retries, pausing exceptions, making work parallel because LibRD Kafka pretty much gives you a, a single a way to fetch messages, but it doesn't tell you how to process them. So it's going to give you a lot of messages from a lot of topics and a lot of partitions, but it's up to you to decide whether you want to process that in, in parallel or whether you want to do it just you know one after another. And with Kafka, you don't have to worry. You just define how many worker threads you want. And as I said, it, it is going to do its best to to help you parallelize the work. There are always corner cases and there are places where without extensive knowledge, you may be better just doing one thing at a time. But I think that for 95, 98% of cases, it's a plug and play, fire and forget type of type of thing. Why is why is it better than other frameworks in, in, in the Ruby space for Kafka? First of all, not me to judge. Second of all, as far as I know, it's the only one that uses threads to do work in parallel. So it's it's kind of a bit like uh, rescue versus red versus sidekick in in that in that matter. And I I've been here for years, not planning to do any other stuff aside from security and Kafka. So I, I think I'm pretty reliable. I think I I tackled majority of corner cases. And one thing that I'm super proud of. In 2.0, I wrote a lot of a lot of regression tests that actually talk with Kafka and do really weird stuff like processing data backwards, stuff you don't usually do, but stuff that proves that certain solutions are re- reliable enough to do weird stuff without breaking. So I, I encourage you to look at the 2.0 branch into specs integrations. There, are any corner case you can imagine, I think it's there, and if not, just open an issue and I will be happy to add it because it helps me as well. So my, my follow-up question then is, because I've been looking forward to this in the Kafka space, is uh, Kafka Streams. Do you, do you have any plans with Kafka to introduce something to wrap that? Uh, yeah, I do. I have a plan to introduce a pro version of Kafka, mainly to get some funding to get, in, get into Kafka Streams. As long as I can get some funding to get some help from other people, other smart people, and I can use this money to to invest into streams. Yes, I have a plan to implement the streams API. Maybe not directly into Karafka, but as a as a part of the Karafka ecosystem. Give this guy some money. Depends <laughs> depends on the yeah. So, somebody give this guy some money. <laughs> it, for those that don't know, Kafka streams are, are kind of a, a way to query against the live streaming data. It's, it's really interesting. So hopefully. Hopefully you get to work on that because I, w- I would love to take advantage of that. Does that mean that instead yeah. of polling, then you're kind of connected to a web socket and you're just pulling stuff in all the time? Well, it means you you define a window on which you can operate like semi, semi SQL queries and you can get results out of it. So it's, it's quite convenient to do certain operations, especially if, if you do in-memory processing with Kafka, Kafka and things like that. For some of those things, you, you could 
easily just write streams, use Kafka streams and, you know, not have certain overhead of running processes and complex stuff aside from business logic. So yeah, I would love to get into streams, but I do need some funding and help. That's why I, I'm going to have a pro. Pro of Karafka is going to be, I'm going to provide certain small features only for like super advanced users and ask for a bit of money. And obviously some consultancy hours are going to be involved in that. And I had a plan to reinvest 80% of that money into streams and 20% to give away to open source. Karafka depends on. There are other open source projects and libraries that uh, Karafka depends on. I just wanted to get this money to uh, other other people. So yeah. Interesting thing, all of the pro stuff is also going to be open source. So I didn't go with this approach that Mike has with Sidekick Pro that you get a different URL from a different registry. I'm too lazy to maintain that, to keep SLAs and, you know, make people rely on me. So all of the Karavka Pro code is in the same same repository, in the same package. You just need to provide a license key. Technically speaking, you can just monkey patch the license check and you should be be good to go. I I don't think it's worth doing that because it's not going to be expensive. But if you would really want to, yeah, whatever. I'm not going to stop anyone from doing that. It's a tough world. We're still trying to figure out how to make open source. Like we're still coming up with funding models. So yeah, it's tough. It is. And, you know, a lot of Ruby open source could be developed faster or better or could go beyond certain limitations with a bit of funding with the whole dry ecosystem, right? If Piotr Solnitsa could just work on dry stuff, we would have a lot of cool libraries. Or ROM. ROM is a great tool as well. I'm a big fan of Peter Solnitsa's work. The ROM library changed the way I implement all of my databases, all my platforms. Yes, I struggle to give open source developers money because I'm mean and selfish. But uh, it's a different question. <laughs> it's a different question if you're working in a massive company like Doximity. I mean, they must have money to burn, right, Valentino? I get they could they could just throw money at this problem straight away. And uh, is that not the case? The case with Doximity? Uh, <laughs> I, I I'm joking. It. I'm joking. You don't have to answer that. You don't have no, to answer uh, that. I mean. I, we're small potatoes compared to some of the other giants like Shopify out there, right? With trillion dollar market caps. But have you, Magic, have you considered making it ransomware instead? Mm, for what? You can make. Ignore Luke. Well, making. It's, it's the new trend. Putting ransomware in it wouldn't make any sense because you can get much better return on investment by exploiting uh, RubyGems and NPM in other ways. So if. We're talking about crypto mining. There are ways to get into more computers than just infecting Karafka with it. So no, I, I did not consider that. I did some extensive PO, let's call it POCs in 2020 and 2021 to validate certain of my ideas in, in the security space. Yeah, you can do a lot of cool stuff. Illegal, I, on a slightly serious note, I was going to say, I have seen a glut of articles recently from, it feels like they're coming from the perspective of not a developer, where they're like, hey, there's like a problem in the open source community, because look at this open source developer that like, you know, messed with like Russian computers not too long ago. Look, they could be doing that to us, these developers, like they're not in control. And so I feel like there's a little bit of fear mongering going around, and I feel like sort of a bit of a call to action, in my opinion, like we as as a collective developer group of people 
probably might want to like figure out what we want to do about open source before somebody comes knocking and says you need to do this because you know we want to control you so i don't know i kind of feel like there's probably some pressure to it's a hard problem and i'm not like we, we haven't solved it yet and we're a bunch of smart people so you know obviously that means it's a very hard problem but at the same time i feel like other people want to get their hands in the cookie jar now so it might be a thing that we should spend more more of our time thinking about in our spare time that's my thoughts on it we use open source we don't want to pay anyone but and yet we have expectations towards people providing the open source to keep providing it right I have a lot of fun with, with Kafka. So the reason why I'm providing the, I think about providing the progression is not to get a lot of money, but to be able to invest in, in streams and other things. But I can totally imagine people, frustration of people spending a lot of time on their super popular open source and then asking for help and not getting any, right? And, and I think that the only reliable business model that would work is the one that Mike uses for Sidekeep. Like here's an open source library. If you need certain pro features or, or need a really good support, well, you need to pay. And I think it's a win-win. Companies get amazing software of a great quality. They get someone they know that is responsible for this software, which kind of minimizes the, the supply chain risk, at least for this library. They get someone they can trust. And the investment cost is like for, for Sidekeep, what, $50 a month? one hour of an of a average software developer to get bad, something yeah. like that. So, so yeah, if we're talking about this open source supply chain problem, this is a big problem. And someone is knocking on our doors. Last year, the Biden administrator released, what was it called? The executive order on software security that will slowly impose certain regulations on anyone that wants to build software for US government, right? We're starting with Software Bill of Materials, SBOM, which is just a really long list of all of your dependencies and their states, and you will have to provide that to the US government, right? But slowly we're gonna get into this, hopefully not over-regulated, but definitely regulated world where, yeah, open source is not only gonna be seen as a benefit, but also as a big risk. That's one part of the story. The second is the more stuff we regulate in open source space, the less space we have for new open source, creative open source, because it's going to be really hard for people to get their open source software used, right? I think Google had this idea that maintainers of popular packages shouldn't be should be publicly known, or they, they should be at least you know, listed with their names or, or something like that. And not everyone wants that. I can totally imagine a world where you either do that or no one is allowed to use all your open source. So even if you have a great, even if you release Kafka streams, right? Ruby. No one may be able to use that because you don't want to comply with regulations that would impose on you certain legal risks while you're not being paid for that. You're just a dude from Poland doing some funny open source and MIT, LGPL, no warranties, no string, strings attached. Sorry. And then suddenly, no, no Kafka streams for your company or, or actually anyone else aside from other open source projects. So I don't know if we're going into, I don't know if our direction is good, the direction where, where we are going with open source, but we'll see. I mean, I would actually agree with you, but so I want to, 
I, I didn't realize we were going to dive too philosophical, but I mean, I would definitely, my <laughs> opinion is that we need to get, we need to get more developers like involved with like governance, right? Like whether that's in Congress or whatever, because I feel like there's a whole bunch of people that have no idea, like all the stuff that we do every day, like trying to tell us what to do. And that scares me. But yeah, okay, we can move on. <laughs> I'm quite optimistic on Biden's administrative, at, at least so far, their ideas are solid. Whether they contradict open source openness and, you know, do whatever you want, risk is on you. That's not me to decide, but yeah, we'll see. Some regulations need need to happen because developers don't care about security. They don't want to do it. It's pretty much like concurrency day, right? You, you just want to have it all done. You want someone to take care of that. You just want to focus on doing your work. Exactly. I do. I did want to respond a little bit to that about the not caring about security, because I think that sometimes it can be taken in a derogatory. And I don't think it should. Like, I don't think the developers are paid to care about security, Mm -hmm. just like I don't Mm -hmm. think developers are paid, for example, to like they're not paid to do sysadmin work and things like this, which is like why when you're leaning on developers to care about like DevOps side of things, security side of things, like that's the wrong way to do it because you're paying them to deliver results, not to to care about the security. So you you'll have mis misaligned incentives, misaligned expectations and things like that. So I definitely think that unless you are specifically paying a developer to care about that stuff, in which case their velocity is always going to be lower, right? Because they're going to spend a lot of that velocity Mm -hmm. on thinking and and trying to create walls and protect and things like that. Um, Unless you explicitly make that part of their job description, they can't because that's not what they're being judged on. And therefore, that's not what they're being paid on. So I definitely think we have to like, just be careful about like, yeah, yeah. <sighs> there's there's like a bare minimum. You don't want your developer to like, you know, be like, all right, I'm going to get Rails out of the box and I'm going to turn off CRF tokens and I'm going to turn off like every other security feature in there. That I think that's a base level expectation that you can have. <laughs> mm-hmm. But beyond that, like, I don't think you can expect your developer to be on top of every security bulletin all the time. They're going to catch the ones that hit their inbox, maybe. But there's, yeah, I think it's, anyway, I'm sure that, there are yeah, other yeah, yeah you're, the table. you're right. No, you're, in my opinion, you're absolutely right. Uh, I may have stated that in a different way. They don't care because it's not their job. Let's put it that way, right? If the expectations on delivering, obviously security is not their concern. And maybe if they would care more about security, they would be in a DevSecOps space, not uh, in, a, in a software development space. So maybe that's, that's the reason. But what I also notice is that even the bare minimum, you know, setting up open source free tools when you're working in a small startup where you don't have extensive pen testing team, you don't have DevSecOps team, you don't have a DevOps, you just deploy to Heroku or somewhere. Even then, you should have at least a bit of a security mindset. But when I talk with people, they have software with a lot of CVEs, high severity, critical severity CVEs, exploitable ones and they're like yeah we don't we don't store sensitive data what can happen oh yeah someone will mine cryptocurrency on our computers we'll just restart that so i think yeah yeah 
I think it's a fine line to walk because we do need as developers, and I do think we do bear a certain level of responsibility around. And so if you're developing a microservices app and you are exposing every single one of your microservices with a FQDN, just so it's easier for you to talk between the microservices, well, then you are increasing your service level exposure or your service level attack. And I think that's something that the developers should keep in mind as they're developing what the best practices are, what the OWASP top 10 are. They're running breakman on every commit or push. And if they're not doing those kind of things, then you will eventually get yourself into a bad situation that then has to be explained to less techie people who are very angry that their information <laughs> got taken or something else. Hang on. What should I be yes. running on every commit? Rack, 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 man? Break. Break, man. man. <laughs> What's that? What is it? Are you serious, sir? Yeah, I didn't know what it is. It's, What's that? Put the brakes oh. on your coding, Luke. It's a static code announcer that <laughs> will basically just look at your code to see if there's any obvious vulnerabilities. And it's really helpful to, you know, point out some insecure like file access type things that you might have so it's a good thing to run on your code base no i I don't do that at all and i I do a lot of commits i've got to go and run it a load of times what i do is i have it as part of my cicd pipeline so if there is something that gets flagged there then i actively have to look at it before i can merge into my main branch hi this is charles maxwood from top end devs and lately i've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, Go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. I think what I was kind of trying to get is I think that we, everyone has a different set of expectations for what they think people should be doing. And I think that like we often are very, judgmental about like well they should have done that or they should have done this and like my point is like i think that if you want a developer or developer team of developers to care about security you probably need to explicitly tell them and let them know that you're paying them right to to achieve some level of expectations like personally like what i tell people and what i try to do is i care about the oas top 10 so i thought it was awesome that you brought that up dave i care about the OWASP top 10 if i am am caring and take care of the OWASP top 10 then i feel like i have met a reasonable level of security and yes could there be zero days and other things that like maybe my you know system could have vulnerabilities yes that's true but like since i typically don't get very clear and defined expectations from the people that i'm doing work for that's the level that i hold myself to because i feel like it's a reasonable level also i think that rails basically comes out of the box giving you 
stuff that helps you handle all of it pretty much. So, and it's always been that way. And I feel like I don't have to really work very hard to achieve the OWASP top 10. So it's a low level, good, like it's, it's low risk, high reward, right? So that's how I feel about it. And that's the expectation that I hold myself to. But I do, I think the thing that I was really getting at is like, I think that we judge other developers and people who are non-developers judge developers and they're like, oh, they should have known about that thing. And I'm like, okay, if it wasn't on the OWASP top 10 list or, or if it wasn't, I mean, even if it's not, like, did you explicitly tell them that that was your expectation? Because there's a lot of, there's so many vulnerabilities and security is totally a game of like lots of work for small wins. Go ahead, if Let's take a fun example because this is a double-edged sword. You're going to get hurt one way or the other. You just have to be careful when you're playing with these swords. So if you have a project and you let the gem file or rather the gem file lock just kind of sit there forever, you never run bundler audit to see if there are any gems with known CVEs that have been patched and you just never update your gems because your train of thought is everything was working, everything was secure at the time that we started using that gem, so we're not going to touch it. Or maybe you're just too afraid to touch them and update your gems because a whole house of cards will come crumbling down. Different set of problems. But let's say you never update your gems. Well, then you are exposing yourself to potential zero-day exploits or other vulnerabilities that can make your application compromised. But on the other hand, if you just run bundler update or bundle update all the time, every single time, before you do a push and you just do a quick regression to make sure it didn't break anything. So you know your application code, there's no errors there. But what you don't know is, are you pulling in an updated gem that has been compromised? So maybe someone else has compromised the gem. It could be a popular one, it may not be. And then now you're bringing in an exploit into your application. So I think we had to walk this fine line of security where... We're not leaving things so out of date that they become easily exploitable and we're not updating too fast or deploying too fast to where we are just, without knowing, bringing in exploits. I think we're on the cusp of, of a huge shift in, in open source, really, but in software in general, right where we're right now, GitHub has been really great with passive security, right? Like doing, introducing security scanning tools. I mean... Other companies do this as well, but you know, you just upload your code and it scans it for you. There's all these bundler checks to so you can audit the dependencies. There's all these passive things that you can do retroactively to monitor how secure maybe some of the stuff that you're using is. And what I'm excited for is kind of like the active security, right? Or responsing responsiveness of security, you know, updates. So say like, you know, an exploit is found, that alert goes out to a public security forum and something happens. Your your code is analyzed and maybe fixed or something like that, you know, that whole pathway is kind of missing. <laughs> and I'm kind of curious to see what your guys' thoughts are on that. Like, what, what do you see as missing or can be done to kind of lead us there where, you know, you, you no longer, because we have like Dependabot, right? Or, or some kind of bot that could say, hey, this gen that you're using has a, a a patch, here it is, you know, merge it if you want. And you wait for the test to run, but you you take the risk, you know, updating any dependency, any code, 
that it could break something <laughs> the way that you're using it, right? So you take the risk updating for security, you know, the behest of whatever tests you might be missing or, or cases uh, for your use case. So, well, I mean, what are your guys' thoughts are on kind of like that more active approach of security? Do you guys know about uh, Renovate? Nope. Renovate mm-hmm. is an open source, pro- a quite big project. It's actually a competitor to Dependabot. And it has something called merge confidence. So whenever it opens a pull request to update dependencies, it will tell you based on other projects that use the same dependency, whether with what confidence it did, did or did not break other people's specs. And it uses certain heuristics and stuff like that to figure that out. So whenever it opens a pull request, uh, you'll get an info that, hey, this is probably not going to break anything. Your specs are running. Other people's specs are running. Other open source project specs are running. It shouldn't be a, a major change or the other way around. Hey, this pull request will fix the CVE, but it also requires your attention. It, it, it will require your investment, right? And I, I think it's a brand of it with this and a couple other features. I think it's a, a really good project. Definitely worth checking out. That's interesting. In my opinion, the only thing that is missing is awareness that there are so many so many free or open source tools that you can use that are just plug, plug and play and that with certain confidence will mitigate your problems without introducing others, right? Like, like Valentina, like you said, you probably don't want to compromise stability of the system in exchange for security or, yeah. So I'm curious what other ways, maybe things that are missing. And, you know, I, I'm thinking, you know, more of like, just being able to to automatically adjust outside of alerting, right? Because right now the focus has been on alerting and monitoring kind of thing. So I feel like there's just a huge missing space there of applying patches or or retroactively including just the small pieces that maybe have have been fixed. Well, you can set it up. You can set up many tools to work automatically, but w- would you be willing to take the risk? It's it's two a.m. And you have this low risk update that is auto merged and you know auto propagated to staging and then to a deployment. Would you be willing to take the risk? I, I would be only, but for only for critical CVEs that are exploitable in my system. For stuff like that, definitely I would be. Uh, let's take Log4j, right? That happened happened what month ago? One and a half month ago. I don't know if you guys are familiar with Log4j. It was December. Wasn't that like six months ago? <laughs> Mm. I, know, I feel, I feel like, like that happened around ago. Christmas time. It was December 2021. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it was five, a five, short. Five. I get it. it was uh, a, yeah. Yeah. So for people that don't know, you could just build a string that would allow you to run any arbitrary code on the server mm. uh, that would receive this. That would use this this really popular package called Lock for for J for Java. And yeah, for stuff like this, I would definitely be able to take the risk of having it auto-mitigated, auto-updated, auto-deployed. But for less risky stuff, mm, I still wouldn't feel fully confident, you know? One yeah, open source project, updating I guess, my open source project. I guess, I guess it would depend, right? Like, is it is it something that's like, you know, manage, is it on the Kubernetes level, right? Is it managing a bunch of resources that you're making available? Or is it like something, you know, on an application layer where it, you can apply, hey, only apply this to X number of users kind of thing. You know, can you can you shard the process 
mm-hmm. not shard it, but can you, you know, separate the AP process testing. and isolate the node uh, to only deliver to so many people so that you can say, okay, we can gain more confidence with the longer that it's out. You know, I feel like there's just blue, a bunch of blue. Yeah. There's a bunch of tools that I feel like maybe exist, just there's no coordination. <laughs> there's there's nothing where you could say, hey, here's a security fix, put it in your pipeline kind of thing. There's no pipeline. <laughs> it's like everybody has their own kind of system. Yeah, and, sure. and I think that we'd all be very fearful of somebody creating that pipeline too. I mean, may- maybe if GitHub came out tomorrow, it was like, hey, if you just install this in your app, then you'll get free security updates and we'll handle all the risk for you. And like, I feel like some of us might take advantage of it, but I feel like basically anyone else, we're all going to well, be like, so to, what's your angle here? And like, how much money point, am though, I going to have to pay you? And <laughs> Think about Heroku, right? Think about all of these hosting providers. They do that, right? And I mean, yeah. I know they own the systems, <laughs> but... At the, at the same time, you know, you use AWS too, and they own those systems. And there's a, there's a huge population of the internet on AWS and any number of these other, you know, platforms uh, that, you know, maybe could take advantage of something of, of this nature. Well, I mean, you well, look at the SolarWinds would you breach, trust that right? Too? Yeah. I mean, SolarWinds was legitimately security software, right? And they got compromised. And it compromised everybody they were managing security for. And so it's, and you know, and I'm not picking on security software. I'm just saying nothing is foolproof, right? Nothing that you're going to put out there that's going to manage these kinds of things is going to 100% solve the problem. And the other thing, and I, I'm sure this has been brought up over and over again, is just feels like it's an escalating war. We, we, uh, we figure these things out and then they figure these things out and then we take things to the next level. And so, yeah, we figure out, okay, we're watching for these kinds of exploits now. And so they're just going to find another way in. And so you, you have to be paying attention. It works that way. I can, I can assure you, I, I can see how when we build security detection tools in white source or security detection Mm -hmm. tools for defense, when you build certain stuff, and you start reporting incidents to NPM or RubyGems or you know other vendors or companies, and those packages are taken down. You see how the attackers evolve. They know it's not going. Uh, this approach is no longer going to work. A great example of it was uh, were hooks for NPM and RubyGems. You have those post-install or pre-install hooks. You can ba- basically run code upon install of a package, right? And attackers used to use that to build reverse shells or collect data, right? But now more and more companies are looking into what is being executed when you install stuff or they actually prohibit any stuff from being executed when you install it. And a couple of days ago, I, I've seen few pa- few new packages having the remote code execution shells, but only when you start using the software itself, right? So the probability that it's going to be stopped early goes down and many things that the attackers change based on how and what we detect, how they play around publishing useless, semi-useless packages, like packages no one will use called please don't install me test dot point one, whatever, right? They upload stuff like that with malicious content and they see which one of them is going to stick. They're going to, they're going to, they're not going to use a certain vector of attack if it's going to be taken down in an hour by NPM. But if it's there for a month or a year, the probability that someone will detect it is lower. So you you probably want to go with this 
exploit instead of others that were taken down. And it is happening every single day. Every single day, we report at least 10 packages to NPM. Hang on, this is part of the DIFFEND system. Mm -hmm. What is the DIFFEND system? I had a look, and it seems to be a way of detecting ASCII art in open source. But does it do other stuff as well? (laughs) Yes, it's one of the features. No, DIFFEND is an open source supply chain platform. So basically, it is combined out of two things. One is the detection engine that we use to detect malicious package versions. We scan every single version of every single package that is being released to NPM and RubyGems, and we make sure it is not malicious. And the second thing is the part, the API part, where you can connect your bundler or NPM or or Yarn and make sure that when you run install command or update that you don't get something fishy basically. So we detect something. When we detect something, we flag it. We report it to NPM or RubyGems. It takes some time for packages to be taken down. NPM has a different policies than RubyGems, right? There's always a window where the package can be can be downloaded. And even if it's taken down, you have caches, you can you have Docker, you can have like multiple layers of, of caches where this package can stay for sometimes for months. And Defend just makes sure you, you don't run weird stuff like that. How does it work? Is it there must be some kind of static code analysis? Is there any other kind of secret neural deep learning open stuff in there? Well, if there wouldn't be, no one would buy it for, from me, right? Right. <laughs> and, and it was acquired. So <laughs> we first of all we find a lot of stuff. I think it now it's more than sixteen thousand package versions that we detected and reported for the last one year, one and a half year. The way it works is is proprietary, but to does it use a lot of cash? As much, mm, actually, no, it doesn't use cash at all. <laughs> but, uh, I'm lazy. I pick stuff that I need to get job done. We we do a lot of stuff. We do static code analysis. We do behavior analysis. We analyze how the package versions behave and how they behave in correlation to their previous versions. We analyze other packages of the same users, we build up like network of dependencies and we try to understand whether there's a deviation in a, in a behavior of a package or behavior of the owners or the publisher, or is there any change in the ecosystem that would indicate that something is not right? An abstract answer, but pretty much, uh, yeah, explains what Defend does. Each time you release a package, Defend will pick it up and look at it. I've got a I've got a follow-up question. In some parts of the world, some parts which are getting closer and closer, people don't enjoy the same freedoms that we do. And mm. technology is highly controlled, highly censored, especially regarding access to information. And a system that can check very successfully for software vulnerabilities could conceivably check for forbidden encryption methods, firewall <laughs> bas- bypassing utilities. And we've all seen code you know, actually removed from GitHub in particular to try and punch through mm-hmm. the Great Firewall of China. Uh, so people do have free access to information. Are you worried at all that the same tool that can be used to look for code vulnerabilities could eventually be used to restrict the freedom of developers to, to code? It's a complex question because you have freedom of developers to be able to code and then you have certain risks associated with using open source of certain people from certain countries, right? So I think that 
there definitely should be a lot of freedom for people to build what they want and do what they want with it, as long as it's not causing any harm or not serving evil intent. But at the same time, I believe that companies should be able, should be aware and should have right to be aware that certain pieces of software come from certain countries or certain areas, right? Uh, because I can totally see a case where someone is being forced by a government or an entity to put certain pieces of non-exactly legit software into the really popular open source to cause harm to someone at the other end of the world. And I strongly believe that you should be able to do assessment of risk when you when you use any type of open source or any type of software, actually, right? This is where we where we should go with SBOM, that you're not only able to get a list of software, you should be able to run analysis on the risks uh, a given piece of software brings to your uh, organization. Yeah, and you know, you could pay for closed source software that could also cause harm. <laughs> right? <laughs> if, if you use it a specific way, right? So I, I don't know that, it, you know, open source is any more vulnerable than any other type of source. It's... <laughs> Well, I think I think I think, I think we're ahead. moving towards a world where we don't just have open source, but we have approved source. Certainly, I think we all are old old enough to remember when it was illegal to export cryptography from the United States. That was the right the case right way up to the nineties, and now we view cryptography as a kind of almost a human right. It is human right, a right to privacy. So this is doesn't just affect people, you know, in more notorious regimes it also affects you know certainly me in england so i think this is a brilliant tool and really really good if you're worried about your your open source packages and forming more secure software supply chain but i don't think you can separate malicious code from government forbidden code i think those two are uh, indistinguishable indistinguishable well they're both malicious i guess that (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, careful now, careful now. (laughs) No, I I think that open source to some gives a false sense of security. Hey, it's open source. Everyone is looking at it. If something would be there, someone would find it, right? It's not that easy because for some software, you you need to be an expert. You need to have a domain knowledge to actually understand the complexity of the software. And this, like with Kafka, Karafka, this open sourceness just isn't as expected. It is not everyone being able to look at it, find bugs, report security issues. On the other hand, we could say the same about proprietary software, right? It gives you a false sense of security because there's a big company behind that. You're paying them a lot of money. So they're definitely, their security team is definitely the best one you can get. Yeah, I don't I don't think there's a there's a silver bullet to tackle all of the problems. Supply chain is becoming a, a hot topic, whether we're talking about the open source supply chain or the proprietary supply chain components, you know, uh, Docker scanning, proprietary components scanning and, and things like that, or just uh, making sure that you use legit packages. There's still a lot of things to be done. Yep. I'm going to push us toward picks here unless there's something else that we absolutely need to cover as part of this topic everyone got real quiet so i'm gonna i'm gonna assume that we've more or less covered the topic we should probably just bring this up periodically because i think it's a topic that's going to become more and more relevant as time goes on people are just finding new ways to to exploit software but uh yeah let's go ahead and do picks and then we'll uh we'll wrap up 
Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Let's have Dave start us off with picks. All right. Well, I don't really have any great picks, so I'm going to pick this stupid thing. So I have a direct attached storage for my Mac, and it does my time machine. It's a backup storage and all that good stuff. So the problem is it's a bit noisy, and I want it away from my desk. And I did not want to spend $600 for a fiber optic Thunderbolt cable. So Apple recently released a three meter Thunderbolt cable and it actually works. I'm able to get it up and away from my desk. I have it put away on a shelf and I don't even hear it now. So I'm going to pick the super 150 some odd dollar three meter Thunderbolt cable. That is a long it's actually cable. Not a, it is. It is, especially for Thunderbolt. And it's actually not a horrible price for Thunderbolt cables because those in nature are just very expensive anyways. Cool. John, what are your picks? Okay, so I have two picks. One of them kind of came up today. So my first pick, I'm just going to go ahead and be like, hey, if you're not familiar with, you should become familiar with and care about the OWASP 10. I think it, in my opinion, it's a pretty good standard for like you as a web developer specifically. I mean, this is not, there are other lists for like, if you're not a web developer or whatever, but the OWASP 10 is support web development or whatever, mostly. It's just a pretty good, I guess, standard to hold yourself to or whatever, I guess. In my opinion, I feel pretty proud. Like, I'm like, all right, I've handled this much. Like, yeah, that doesn't mean that my app is perfectly secure or anything, but it means that I can at least go to sleep at night without freaking out about it or whatever. And I at least have a good way of like when somebody's like, hey, are you caring about this thing? I can be like, well, if that's the thing that you care about, let's make that part of, you know, whatever, like our contract or part of my job description, blah, blah, blah. Like if that's an expectation that you have, you know, maybe we can add it in. But yeah, this is at least like, I feel like what I can hold myself to when expectations are not explicit. And then for my second pick, I have just been back into my scotch kick. Scotch is still extremely expensive over here, but but uh, prices have come a little bit down from when they were in COVID. And so I've been picking up some more scotches and I have been thoroughly enjoying my Abinad this past week, uh, which is an Avalor. So it's Avalor Abinad. It's like a cast strength kind of thing, which has kind of become a little bit popular over here in the whiskeys over here in the US or whatever. But uh, before before that happened, this was like, if you were like, hey, I want something spicy, this is like what any Scotch person would like recommend to you. And it's really awesome and pretty consistently good. So each batch is a little bit different. So there are some batches that are like very expensive because everybody wants it. And there are some batches that are not quite as good, but for the most part, they're almost all very good. Those are my two picks. Nice. Valentino, what are your picks? So my first two picks are two open source projects. We just released that Doximity. The first one's uh, called Simple Kick. It basically lets you orchestrate a you know a series of Sidekick jobs for Sidekick Pro. So if you have a pipeline of uh, jobs that depend on each other, it just lets you orchestrate that in an easy to read single Ruby file. We've been using it. It's working really awesome to make sense of <laughs> of the mess that you can make with Sidekick. <laughs> And uh, the other one is, it's really cool uh, GitHub action that basically just lets you extract a list of file names from a commit SHA or pull request and 
perform some function on it. So we use that to, as an example, run just specs on a specific uh, diff that was made when you're creating a pull request and a, b- a bunch of other uh, related things uh, for GraphQL as an example, just to generate a re- regenerate a schema for whatever's files have been touched. So definitely go check that out. It's a GitHub action callback list files. And then the next one is kind of just like a Ruby gems announcement. There's a, a proposal up for scoped gems, which I think is pretty interesting. I would definitely recommend weighing in on that, checking out the proposal. It gives you that kind of <laughs> not to <laughs> not to shout out to JavaScript, but you know npm packages that have the at symbol. Uh, it's definitely convenient and lets you have any name gem you want within a you know higher level tier. It will awesome. bring a uh, mess. It will be a, a crazy time when we when we adopt namespaces for a while because people won't know whether they should go with Rails or or at Rails slash Rails and so on. So it's, it's going to be a yeah. huge field for exploitation for actors. I'm going to register the namespace JavaScript socks at and just copy everyone's gems into that. <laughs> at Chuck slash rocks. I like that. Anyway, right. uh, Luke, what are your picks? Oh, Matt, well, there's this really good article by this guy called Magic Mensfield about reducing your method calls using um, an example using the Fred dot um, pass. And this is a really interesting article because I actually wrote the queue system like that when I was working in Job Japan. Uh, parallelizing jobs on my Mac, and I was had image rendering, and I had hundreds of images. And every time I made a mistake, which is like a lot, the job had to rerun. It took twenty minutes to rerun, so I kind of got really into the queue um, class and semaphores and came up with something. And this article uh, by this Mensfeld guy. Uh, kind of delves into that in a lot more detail and it really talks about the trade-offs between um, queuing jobs. That's my that's my first pick. My second pick is using JSONB in Postgres using uh, Jeremy Evans SQL Gem. We've got a really big logging system at work that chugs through a lot of data and it's all numeric and you end up with uh, squillions of rows, squillions. And I'm looking at reducing overheads by putting more data into one row, right? So there's just less churn. Uh, relational databases apparently aren't supposed to do this because of normalization and stuff, but I want to do it, so I'm doing it. It's a very powerful technique using JSONB, but it is very tricky, and I'm still really struggling with how to make efficient queries with structured data and databases. And like it's coming from a Rails background, you're used to all this stuff being abstracted away from you. So it's been really challenging getting into uh, using these advanced database features, but really interesting and uh, really huge performance gains. Like you were talking about earlier, getting kind of a hundred times, a thousand times performance gains. If you can leverage these more advanced features of the systems you're using, you can really transform their performance. So that's me. Hey, Chuck. I just remembered I had another pick that Luke reminded me of. Do it. I have an M1 machine. That's what most of my development machines are, desktop and laptop. And I recently had to build for x86 images for Docker. And if you've never tried doing that, it is a painful... I have done it. I've done it. It's really slow. It is extremely slow because of the processor architecture emulation. So I recently discovered that with the docker build x command, you can pass in a flag called builder. 
and you can set up this builder to a remote x86 Docker install on your network or a remote network. So all your code remains on your local machine, but it will use the Docker engine of the remote host to actually do all of the building of that image. And so by doing that, I was able to shave off minutes of my build time of the images I was having to create. And so it doesn't interrupt your workflow at all. You just pass in one additional flag into your uh, Docker build command. So I wrote up a article on it. And so I'm going to pick that article. All right. Well, yeah, let's let's share that so people can find it. I'm going to jump in here with a couple of picks. Uh, the first one is I've been picking board games and I'm going to start on Legendary. So Legendary, this is the Marvel Legendary. There are other versions for other TV franchise and comic book franchises. But the Marvel one is a lot of fun. There are a whole bunch of expansions for it. I'm probably going to wind up using up the expansions for the next six or seven weeks just to kind of talk through them. But initially, you kind of get the the core comic book characters that you're probably most familiar with from the Avengers movies and stuff in the uh, Legendary game. And it's it's a ton of fun to play. I always look it up on Board Game Geek to get you the, the game weight. And this particular game, I'm still waiting for it to come up here. It is a 2.44. So, you know, it's it's a reasonably involved game, but it's not, it doesn't have so many rules that it's hard to follow. So I'm going to pick that. And then I'm also just going to shout out about, so how do I put it? I've been using NetFTP which is a Ruby core library to do some of the work. Basically the way that uh, the podcast universe works is that almost all your uh, hosting for media files, you upload over FTP, uh, like it or hate it. And so I've been working out a system where people can upload over the internet and then not have to use an insecure protocol. I'll use the insecure protocol forum and programmatically push the files up. And, And so that's been kind of interesting uh, just kind of work my way around. But then I can put all the credentials into environment variables and manage all that stuff in a little bit more secure way instead of having the traffic sniffed by whoever's sitting there sniffing. So I'm using that for Top End Devs and Podcast Playbook. And uh, so I'm going to pick that. And then the last one I'm going to shout out about, and this is kind of a half-hearted pick, but it's domainagents.com. So a while back, I bought podcastplaybook.co because podcastplaybook.com was owned by somebody else. And and so I, uh, I went and I tried to buy the other domain. And <clears throat> so the upside of using somebody like domain agents is that I found that people are sometimes more willing to deal with them than they are to deal with, you know, some person on the Internet they don't know and worry about whether or not it's a scam or, you know, that I'm trying to, you know, play off something. Um, the other thing that's nice about it is that they use escrow.com to facilitate the domain transfer. So I own podcastplaybook.com now. And uh, that that all worked out. The only problems I really had with it were that um, the negotiation mechanisms aren't really super well fleshed out. And so I offered a payment plan. And then when things went through for the purchase, it turned out that they didn't put in the pay- payment plan. And it's because I had 
put the offer in as a full payment offer, you know, and then explain that I wanted to do installments. And anyway, it turned into this, this thing. The other issue that I had was that as part of the escrow thing, effectively what they had to do was give you the, I don't know if you've ever transferred a domain from somebody else. If you buy it with your own reg on the registrar and it's unowned, then it just shows up in your account. But otherwise you have to have a code that will allow you to transfer the domain. Um, and I've done this a handful of times with different things. But effectively, what you're doing then is what's held in escrow is that transfer code. And I actually had to bug them a handful of times to get it, even though it was part of the escrow system. The flip side is, is that it worked. So if you're trying to find somebody who can act as kind of a reliable third party for a domain purchase, they're who I used and they were okay. So it doesn't sound like a glowing review and it's not, but it worked. So. There you go. Machek, what are your picks? My pick is rather funny because I pick a 25 cent US dollar resistor that can fix uh, Intel CPU. I have a Synology NAS. I, I think it's uh, like four years old, so it's still quite fresh. It gets all of the updates and so on, but it stopped working. And it turns out that, uh, well, Intel developed uh, a CPU that wasn't meant to last too long and it would stop working, basically would not boot. But with the single resistor that is soldered into the motherboard, it just starts working again. So 25 cents and you save $1,500 on a network access storage. So that's definitely my pick. 100 ohms, 0.5 watt. Nice. All right, are those all your picks? Do you want to tell people where to find you online? Oh uh, yeah, you can type my surname, mansfield.pl. That's where I say stay pretty much all the time. You can find me on Twitter, though. You can find me on Twitter as well. And you can check out the Defend.io project. I can highly we, recommend it. Can we contact you by copy-pasting ASCII skull and bones into our open source projects and leaving you a little message? Well, yeah, you can try. I don't pick all of the ASCII, <laughs> ASCII stuff. There are people that host their images on NPM, uploading like gigabyte package that only stores some weird images. So I don't, I definitely don't, don't check all of the ASCII because majority of it isn't malicious. But if you start doing something fishy, there's high probability I will be able to contact you. I did find a security researcher that got into a really big company that didn't want to be found. And he was really surprised when I messaged him on LinkedIn, like, hey, dude, do you know what you did? And he was like, oh, fuck. How, how did you get my how did you get my contact? And you know, it, it turns out I was able to track him down because one year ago, he owned a, a package with someone else. So I, I pinged this someone else and they had stock history and they didn't have his email or anything like that, but they had a, he had an avatar. So I, I used Google image reverse search for this avatar. And there, there was a uh, Twitter profile based on the name. I was able to go to GitHub. And based on that, I found a guy on LinkedIn. He wasn't happy about it. <laughs> well, if you don't want to be found on the internet, being found on the internet's right. problematic, I guess. Yeah. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and wrap up here. Thanks for coming. And until next time, folks, Max out. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.